It had such a wonderful beginning. Traveling on the Damascus Road, the Apostle Paul had come face to face with the living Lord. He was anything but an apostle at that point. He was, in fact, a hater of Christianity. But he could never forget the meeting on the Damascus Road. And after some days of prayer, a reluctant Ananias came to him under the mandate of the Lord to bring about his full understanding and ultimately his baptism. It was the beginning of a great evangelistic career. He saw himself as being especially chosen of God, one as an apostle born out of due time, in fact. And it was a great opportunity, and he looked forward to all that would happen. Now, in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, something had gone terribly wrong. The apostle Paul found himself the subject of an attack by the government of Rome itself. And after having had his back beaten, bloody pulp, he found himself in a Philippian dungeon. We take up reading in chapter 16 of Acts, beginning in verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the very foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposed that the prisoners had fled. But he was about to take his own life. And Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, we're all here. The jailer called for a light and sprang in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, asking the most important single question any human being could ever ask in the history of the earth, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household in the same way. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And they took them the same night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all of his house were baptized. Well, that wasn't the way it was supposed to happen. When you go into the ministry, you're entering a bed of roses. When you go into the Lord's work, you are going to be acclaimed by all men, thanked for your selfless sacrificial service. You are going to be paid more and more and more as time goes along until you are awash in the rewards of your faith. It's going to be a marvelous thing to see what God is going to do with you. But if you think that for one moment is the truth, you ought to read the Bible. It never happens that way. Jeremiah is cast into the mire and has to be lifted out by ropes, but they intended for him to drown in the mire. Daniel is cast into a den of lions for his service to God. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego face the fiery furnace. Moses has to 
put up with the children of Israel for all those years wandering in the wilderness. And on occasion, he reached the point where he said, God, how long do I have to do this? It was a glorious, wonderful ministry. And so today, if you have come to school intending to answer the call of God to the ministry, and I pray that is the truth, and if you have not yet heard that call of God, I pray that you will, and when you hear it, I pray that you will answer it, but I have to tell you that your story will be like that of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Jeremiah, and Paul. And so Paul and Silas find themselves in the Philippian dungeon, and I don't know about you, but I believe I probably would have been having a pity party. I would have said, now, Lord, I can't quite understand this. I made the decision not to go into law. I made the decision that I would not become a physician. Lord, I could hardly have found any other job where I would be paid as little as I'm paid. Lord, in fact, Paul might have said, I can't tell that you pay me anything. I'm a tent maker on the side, and I make my own living. Lord, all of that I've done for you, and what do I get? A bloody back and a place in prison alongside the rats. I don't believe I'd have been very happy. I'm not sure I would have done the same thing the Apostle Paul did. But somehow, there was within his heart a vivid memory of that experience on the Damascus Road. He could never, ever forget it. Come what may, whatever difficulties lay ahead and evidently a martyr's death that he faced and, and fulfilled, and in all of that, the only thing that was higher than all of that together was the memory of the Damascus Road when he met the Lord. He could not forget. You know, that's true. If there was a time when you really met the Lord, when he became a reality to you, the glory of that moment will transcend everything else that ever happens to you. And when you find yourself in the Philippian dungeon, you're going to do the same thing they did. They were sitting there hurting from the brutal beating that they had received and in agony in a dirt-filled, vermin-filled Roman prison. And Paul said to his companion, you know, there's nothing else for us to do. We ought to sing. And so his companion said, let's sing Kumbaya. We need the Lord to come by here. And so they began to sing, the two of them together, not thinking about anything in the world except that they wanted to praise God even in their circumstance. Now, young man, young woman, headed for the Lord's work, here to prepare for it, and by the way, don't go anywhere else until you have finished your preparation. Oh, I know churches are going to come and woo you and tell you you're just the thing for them. You tell them the truth. They are sent by Satan. 
The fact of the matter is, God has sent you here to prepare. Stay in here till you've done all the preparation you can possibly do. But understand this, that when the day comes and you find yourself in a Philippian dungeon, remember that to complain about it's not going to help matters any. To be unhappy about things that happen to you when your professor misunderstands you, when he doesn't grade you quite justly, when your friends are unfriendly and when they cease to be kind to you and when you are struggling, whatever the struggle may be, when you are ill and you are in difficulty and when you cannot pay your bills, which half of you can't do right this minute, when all that happens, that's when to start singing. Don't start grousing. The world grouses about everything. You don't believe it? Read the news on your phone. Everybody's upset with everybody else. The Democrats hate the Republicans. The Republicans despise the Democrats. And everybody, it seems, despises President Trump. And so the world is unhappy. We only get happy about President Trump when we think about the North Koreans or maybe when we think about the Russians or something else and we're unhappy with them and we're just unhappy with everybody. We're an unhappy society. We need a, so a society where some preachers will sing in the midst of the day. You say, well, Mr. President, we've heard you sing We're concerned that it would contribute to the agony of those all around. <laughs> That's why you have somebody sing with you that hopefully is louder than you, but you do need to sing. You need to rejoice in the things of the Lord because whatever the bad is that's happening, it is so far overshadowed by the movement of the hand of God that you and I ought never to be found in a time of great sorrow. Sorry, yes, there are things that make you sorrow, but it is knowing God that enables us not to sorrow as other men sorrow, but instead we're able to smile and rejoice in the midst of it. Now, some of you won't be here next semester, so I wanted to say a word to you First, I wanted to say to you that probably the reason you won't be here next semester is because you haven't learned to sing in jail. Until you learn to rejoice in the Lord and what he's doing, you're going to be defeated by all the circumstances of your life. and You'll leave here and you'll go out into standard evermore defeat. If you want to be victorious, if you want to be blessed of God, you want to be happy, if you want to be jubilant and rejoicing, then learn to sing in jail. It makes all the difference in the world. So at midnight, they sang. Did you see a little phrase there right after that? Don't miss that one. And the prisoners heard them. Did you see that? Oh, let me tell you, when you start singing, everyone in the world is going to listen in amazement. Why, one of those prisoners said, you hear those guys? Yeah. You know, 
they're in worse condition than we are. We're stuck in the same prison with them, but at least our backs are not bleeding right now. What is wrong with those guys? What's happening to them? That turns out to be a very important question because suddenly God heard them also and there's a mighty earthquake and, and all their chains fall off and, and the doors are open. Everybody is free to go. And many of these guys have been sitting there hour by hour, day by day, plotting how they might get out of this dungeon. And now they're free to go. One of them said, we're free. The other said, yeah, I know. He said, um, reckon why we don't want to leave. I don't know, it's peculiar we don't want to leave because we've been sitting here plotting how to get out forever and it's really odd that we have this feeling that we ought to just stay here, you know? I mean, this is really strange. The jailer waking out of his sleep is, of course, uh, given the responsibility for all of these people and if even one is gone, he has to pay with his life. He looks at the situation and sees it. He supposes that prisoners have done exactly what prisoners would normally do under those circumstances and, and uh, uh, get out of Dodge before the shooting starts. And so he knows that he's going to die. He'd rather die by his own hand. He pulls out his Roman short sword and places it in a position where it will not move and he's about to fall on it. And Paul cries out. Now, did it ever occur to ask a question how did Paul know? He has to bring a light into the dungeon to see them in a few minutes. And so they can't see where he is. They have no way of knowing what he's doing. But God will give you what you need to know in that moment. And he gave Paul what he needed to know. And Paul cries out, don't hurt yourself. We haven't gone anywhere. We're all here. Now at that point, the jailer properly understands this is a miracle of God. There is no way these people can be free to go, and they all stay. And so he calls for a light, he springs in, he falls down before Paul, and he asks this most important question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, no place in the Bible is it asked so plainly, although it is asked a million times in the Bible, but not so plainly, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered, you need to be able to define the points of Calvinism. <laughs> what you need to do is to be able to explain Arminius' response to John Calvin. Oh, he said, what must I do to be saved? He said, well, that'll depend on your millennial view. Are you pre, post, or ah? What do I need to be saved? You know, all those other questions, as important as they are, and we're going to study all that here, they are absolutely inconsequential when placed up against this one question, what must I do to be saved? The answer to that determines the quality of life you're going to have here and the quantity of life that you're going to have in eternity. It's an important question. Nothing more important than for you to be sure 
while you're here that you know the answer to that question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so Paul answered the only way of salvation, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, that's great. That means I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. No, you're lost as a goose in a snowstorm. You just happen to be lost believing in Jesus. The word does not mean there in the Greek text to believe intellectually. It certainly starts there, but the word pistuo in the Greek New Testament means more than intellectual assent. When I was a little boy and before my sanctification, I had a pet cat. In the years of my sanctification, I have turned, of course, to dogs. <laughs> but in those days, I had a pet cat. But I was very fond of that cat because it had the heart of a tiger. I named him Lollipop. <laughs> I named him Lollipop because he could lick any cat or dog in the neighborhood. If one set their foot in our yard, all I had to say was, Lollipop, go get him, and the fur flew. It was magnificent to watch, and I was proud of Lollipop. Another interesting thing about Lollipop, there was no tree couldn't climb. We had one of these tall pine trees out in our front yard, no limbs up until about 700 feet, and uh, it was no problem, the Lollipop, Right up to the top of it, he could go. Lollipop had one serious problem, the only one I ever knew him to have, and that is he could climb the tree, but he could never figure out how to get back down. And he would begin to wail about his condition. I remember so many times my father finally had to buy a fireman's ladder in order to be able to get him down out of all the trees he got into. One morning... Dad went off to church, and Mom left to go visit with some women's groups, and I was left at the house fend my, for myself with Lollipop, and Lollipop got in an oak tree three houses down. And I heard him when he couldn't get out. He was crying, and it was a family that lived down there who didn't like me and who didn't like pets, and I thought, mm, yeah, I've got to do something. I don't know what. I went down there, and you understand, I've always been short and fat. And uh, I tried to reach the nearest limb, and it just wasn't conceivable. And so finally, in desperation, I thought of a tall stool we had in the kitchen, and I brought it down there to the oak tree, and I put it up against it and, and made it as fast as I could and got up into the uh, to the uh, stool and I, I was able to finally reach the first uh, branch and I crawled on up in there uh, into the tree and I just kept going up until I got where Lollipop was and I scolded him for just a moment and then I reached out and put an arm around Lollipop and turned around to start down. And you have no idea how high up I was. I suddenly came to the startling conclusion that not only was I in the tree and couldn't get down, and bad Lollipop was there too, and neither one of us could get down. And I began to pray. It was one of the few times. But I began to pray. 
And I thought it was going to be a long day because Dad, when he left in the morning, never came back until night. But about that time, around the corner came that old beat-up Buick automobile he used to drive and drove into the driveway, and my soul felt better already. And as soon as he got out of the car, I began to holler at him, Dad, down here, down here. And so he came down and stood beneath the tree. And he said, son, what are you doing up there? And I said, Dad, you know Lollipop? He insists on climbing these trees and can't get down. He got up here and he was about to wake the dead. And uh, I had to get up and get him down. And he said, well, you didn't get him down, did you? I said, no, sir, but if you'll help us, we'll both get out. He said, well, okay. He said, put old lollipop down, and I'll guide you down. I said, no, if I come down, the cat comes down. He said, all right, hold on to him, but let me guide you down. And so he guided me down a little. Finally, my little old short legs just would not make the next limb. And I said, Dad, what are we going to do? He said, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. He said, you jump, and I'm going to catch you. I said, are you sure? He said, I promise I'm going to catch you. Well, there was no other alternative. I held a lollipop up to my chest as tight as I could, squinted my little eyes tightly so I would not see the mess that followed, <laughs> and I counted to three and leapt from the tree. What happened next was incredible. He caught us both. Well, actually, Lollipop caught him, and he had scars to show for it some time to come, but <laughs> he did catch me. How I'm so grateful. And in later years, I got to thinking about that, and I realized that's what New Testament belief is all about. I'd never known my father to give me a single answer that didn't turn out to be true. I could trust him. I could believe him. If he said, I'm going to catch you, I believed he would catch me. And so the moment that I left the safety, which was no safety, of that tree, and I trusted myself totally and completely to Dad, even though at first it didn't feel like I was safe, I was perfectly safe in my father's arms. Do you know that's what biblical belief is all about? When he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, he meant to turn your back in repentance on all other possible help because it is no help and it will take you straight to hell and instead to give yourself totally and completely by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who will receive you and who promises that him that comes to me I will never cast out. And so saving faith is not intellectual belief. I believe this about that. It is a moment that occurs once in your life when you say no to everything else and commit yourself to Jesus and Jesus alone who can save you 
and promises that he will. Heads bowed, eyes closed, please. Nobody looking around. I know you're at seminary or Scarborough College. And I know you're going to think it would be embarrassing today for me to admit that I didn't know Jesus. Would it be more embarrassing to admit you didn't know Jesus and wanted to come to know him today than to stand before the omnipotent judge of this universe, the Lord God Almighty, and tell him you bypass this opportunity? I'm going to ask Dr. Queen, some of our professors, to come stand across the front here. In just a moment, we're going to pray and then we're going to sing. We're going to give you an opportunity to say yes to Christ. Some of you, God has brought you here for this moment. For nothing else but this moment. May a lot of things follow, but you're here for this moment. I, I ask you right now, in the depths of your heart, to ask this question. Has there ever been a moment when I left the tree and trusted myself to Jesus alone. Have I been saved? Has he changed my life? Am I a new man, a new woman in Christ Jesus? Our Heavenly Father, in just a moment, we're going to sing a verse, maybe two, of a hymn of invitation. Father, I pray for every student here, I thank you so much for them, Lord. You sent them here as your treasure for us to have an investment in their lives and to protect them. And Lord, we want to do that. But Lord, there are 10, 20, maybe 30 who are here this morning who've never, ever been saved. They may be church members somewhere. They may have grown up in a Christian home or not, but... They've never been saved. And Father, as they think about that this day, give them the courage to face the inevitable. And if they understand that maybe they have not been saved, give them the courage to slip out from where they're sitting right this moment. Walk here to the front where one of these professors is going to pray with them and make sure at the very first of this new year that everybody starts off on the right foot. God grant it, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.